We're going to go ahead and turn to our sermon passage now. It's Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. We've been trekking along in the book of Isaiah this summer. We started last summer and we're returning to it. This summer, we're just working our way through bit by bit. I considered abandoning Isaiah and preaching more topically on things related to what's going on in the world since everything is so bizarre right now, but Isaiah has been amazingly applicable. God's Word is living and active. It's profitable. Every word and phrase of it is profitable for our instruction and training in righteousness. And so we've just been continuing in Isaiah, and God has had a fresh word for us every week. And I hope that that's been your experience as it has been for me. So we're in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. It's a very simple sermon this morning. Really just one point. God is in control. God is in control. He is in control of this pandemic. He is in control of all the civil unrest that we see on the news. He is in control of the events of your life. We may wonder if he is still in control. Sometimes intellectually we might have to think about it a little bit. Is he really in control? Or maybe it's not even intellectual. It might be more emotionally we may wonder if God truly is in control. But I can tell you, based on the authority of Scripture, God is in control, and our passage today illustrates it. So let's begin just by reading verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 10. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. If you'll recall, as we've been studying through Isaiah, God has sent his prophet Isaiah to tell his people that there is a judgment coming, there are consequences coming, because they had been rebellious against God. God's people had rebelled against him. They had broken their covenant commands that he had made with them. And he had told them up front what the consequences would be, and now it's time for the consequences. And so he sent Isaiah to explain that these consequences that were coming were because of their rebellion, just like he said. And here he clearly says that he was in control of the Assyrian assault that they were about to experience. He was going to use this pagan nation, Assyria, the same way a parent would use a paddle to discipline their child. So much so, he was so much in control over what was about to happen through Assyria that their weapons were actually an expression of his fury. Not just their fury, but God's fury. And God wanted Israel to know that it was not some random misfortune that was about to befall them. When Assyria came and attacked, he wanted them to know that this was not bad karma, that the universe was bringing bad back upon them. He wanted them to know that this was not natural selection on a national level carrying itself out. He wanted them to know that this was not just run-of-the-mill political misfortune. This is just how it goes. Nations rise up against nations. He wanted to make sure they knew that when Assyria came, he was in control of that, that that was his doing. It was his anger and his fury. Now, why was he so angry and furious? Let's read five and add to that verse five, verse six as well. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, 
to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Why was God so angry and furious with his people so as to send the pagan nation of Assyria to do this? They had become a godless nation. This nation that was supposed to be called out from all other nations and dedicated to God had become godless. They had forgotten God and gone their own way and lived as if God did not exist at all. That was the source of all of their wickedness that we've been seeing over the last several weeks. That was the source of their iniquitous decrees, their wickedness, their idolatry, their arrogance. All of that came from the fact that they forgot God and turned their back on him. They had become godless. They wrote their laws as if God did not exist. They treated people as if God did not exist. They indulged in sin as though God did not exist. They made their decisions and viewed themselves as if God did not exist at all. So this is an ancient problem, godlessness. But we know that it's still also a modern problem. Godlessness remains a problem today, even within the church and people who go to church. Many people perhaps go to church or associate with the church, feel that they are Christians, feel positively in general terms toward Jesus Christ, and yet they live as if God does not exist. Many church folks have exchanged God for other things. They've exchanged God for idols and now ignore God completely in their lifestyles. Many Christian so-called families have exchanged God for baseball and they sacrifice on the altar of ball. Many church-going folks have actually exchanged God for retirement leisure and instead of pursuing God's kingdom, they're pursuing their own kingdoms of retirement leisure. Many church-going folks have exchanged God for the pursuit of social justice without God and apart from God. Many church-going folks have exchanged God for family and have devoted themselves to their families to the neglect of God. Now, baseball and retirement and leisure and social justice and family, these are all good things. But if they replace God, they become idols. They become bad things. When we do this, we become godless. We start our days as though God does not exist. We do our work as though God does not exist. We uh, formulate our budget as though God does not exist. We talk to people as though God does not exist. We make our decisions and plans as if God does not exist. And we become godless and all kinds of sin creeps into our lives because of it. Uh, we're prickly and and we become jerks toward people. We become arrogant like Israel did. We indulge in sin. We, we allow secret sin in our lives. Uh, men get swept up into addiction to pornography. Uh, we just embrace a lifestyle of laziness. Whatever it may be, godlessness is not good. God does not stand for it among his people. Here we see that their godlessness had turned them into what he calls a people of my wrath. He says there in verse 6, Against the people of my wrath I command him, referring to the king of Assyria. So God wants these people to know, the Assyrians are coming, and I am in control of them. I am in control of this Assyrian assault that is coming. They are going to take spoil and seize plunder and tread you down like mire or mud in the streets 
and I'm in control of all of that. Now you say, surely God does not make such things happen. He does not make someone take spoil, seize plunder, and tread people down like mud in the streets. But surely he just allows that to happen. Surely he just maybe initiated the Assyrian king to come and attack, but beyond that, he's hands off and not responsible for what Assyria perpetrates. But that's just not what the passage says. It says in verse 6, against a godless nation, I send him, the king of Assyria, against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like mire in the streets. And this isn't the only place in scripture that indicates that God is in control both over good and bad. In Leviticus chapter 3, verses 38, the prophet Jeremiah is reflecting over the destruction that has come upon God's people. And he says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Later in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, God is explaining how he is in control as he talks about another pagan king that he's going to use for his purposes. And he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And then in the New Testament, it's not just an Old Testament idea. In Acts chapter 4, verse 28, the apostles are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, and they're talking about Jesus's arrest and crucifixion. And they're explaining that Herod and Pilate God rose them up for that purpose, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's how the apostles put it. God brought about Herod and Pilate to do whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. So even Jesus' death, which is, is the, the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity in one sense, was not outside of God's control. He is in control over all things. And this is really problematic for us. I mean, we have to confront the implications of this scriptural truth. I mean, does that all, in the statement, God is in control over all things, does that really include all things? Does that really include 9-11? Does that really include the Holocaust? Does that really include COVID-19? Does that really include the untimely deaths of our loved ones? And for that matter, not even thinking about big, tragic things, even little things, does that really include your stubbed toe this morning when you got up in the dark and you hit your toe on the dresser? Is he really in control of all that? Well, one sermon cannot bear the weight of all these questions. These are the questions of a lifetime of Christian thought, and meditation. These questions have spawned the writings of many books. You can read forever as Christians have wrestled with this question because the Bible is clear that God is in control over all things, but in that category of all things includes some really bad things. Remember when we went through the book of Romans, we spent a lot of time in Romans chapter 9, and in Romans chapter 9, Paul addresses this head-on in relation to salvation. He addresses the fact that we know God is sovereign. He's in control over people being saved. But does that also mean that he is sovereign and in control over people being damned, people not being saved? 
he wrestles with that starting in Romans 9, and, and he kind of keeps working the implications out all the way until he gets to Romans eleven thirty three, and he concludes what we all must conclude as we wrestle with these things. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. These are beyond our ability to comprehend but for now, the short answer to that question, is God really in control over all things? The short answer has to be yes. He is really in control of all things. And that includes bad things. Now, for our purposes right now, consider the alternative. If he wasn't actually in charge of all things, including bad things, consider what that would mean. It would mean that you stubbed your toe this morning because God was powerless to stop it. Maybe he wanted to, maybe he wouldn't want you to have stubbed your toe, but he just couldn't do anything about it. It would mean that the untimely death of our loved ones came because God just didn't know about it until it was too late. Maybe he could have done something if he was aware that it was coming, but he just didn't know. It would mean that COVID-19 began and spread because God just wasn't here. He just wasn't involved. He just wasn't around. He was doing other things. It would mean that 9-11 and the Holocaust took place because God is less than God, and he couldn't stop it. In calamity, if we look over to God, he is not standing in the corner shrugging his shoulders. In tragedy, if you look over to God, he is not saying, oops, I didn't mean to let that happen. I'm sorry, I was just, I was looking the other way, and uh, you know, my bad, I'll do better next time. That's not how God works. God is purposefully in control of all things. He isn't weak. He's omnipotent. He isn't ignorant. He's omniscient. He isn't absent. He's omnipresent. And he's not like the idols that humans worship in that he is powerless. He is the one true God. And so we can say with absolute certainty based on God's word that even though we might not understand it all the time, the Bible is clear, God is in control. We are not in some kind of a free fall. We are not flailing out of control. It's not all up to us. We're not all on our own in this world. God is truly God, and he is truly in control. We can take great peace from this. Uh, it's, it's like a child with his father. Even though we don't understand all the time what's going on. God the Father does understand what's going on. He's not freaked out. He's not scared. And he does not lack control over the situation. He is fully in command, fully in control. Uh, I use this illustration all the time for this point, but we're, we are like little, little children in our Father's arms getting a shot at the doctor. Now, we can't understand why this long needle pressing into our soft flesh and causing this pain could possibly be good but we look at our Father, and He is there, and He is attentive. We know He loves us, and He's allowing it to happen, and He is calm, so we have to trust that He knows stuff that we don't know. Maybe one day we will know. Maybe He'll reveal it to us. Maybe we won't know why He allows and controls things the way He does, because He doesn't owe us any explanation. But we do know from Scripture that He is in control, and so we can be at peace. Knowing that God is in control is a tremendous source of peace for God's people. You can rest in this, this Sabbath day. 
you can take a glorious nap this afternoon. Even knowing everything that's going on on the news while you sleep, you can still lay your head on the pillow and you can, in your mind's eye, you can name every anxiety you have and say, God is in control of that. God is in control of that. God is in control of that. And you can sleep. You can go about your life in perfect peace, remembering that God is in control. You can love your spouse. You can raise your children. You can do your work as unto the Lord. You can serve your neighbors. You can go about your life at peace, even when everything seems out of control, because you know that God is in control. Now, as we closed our service this morning, we received the Lord's Supper, and it was a chance to renew our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and our allegiance to Him as our Lord. It was also a chance to renew our trust in God that He is in control. And we read Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10 as we closed. And I want to read that now with you before we close our time together. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, God says. That's kind of what we've been doing as we've been looking at Isaiah chapter 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. God is in command. He is in control. He is not scared right now. He is not concerned that things are slipping out of his grasp. He is firmly in control. Remember that today. Remember that this week and be at peace.